All right. We are uh, jumping back into Isaiah again. Last time I preached, I was in Isaiah. And the reason for that is while Dr. Miller preaches through 1 Peter for us, I am taking all of the Old Testament passages that 1 Peter quotes, and I am preaching on those to help us see them from the Old Testament perspective and context as well. So we're going to be in Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. But before we jump into that, how many of you are on Twitter? How many of you have a Twitter account? Not that many. I feel, feel very unique now because I've been on Twitter for a long time, since high school. So a long time. And today, I want to share with you uh, probably my favorite Twitter interaction that I have seen, my favorite exchange of tweets that I have ever seen. So can we put that first slide up there? Uh, hopefully you guys can see that. If not, I'll, I'll read it for you. In this, there is a guy named Cameron. I don't know Cameron. As far as I could tell, he was, uh, he was an atheist. He does not believe in God. But he says, we should just pin all the debt in the world to one guy, then kill him. I don't know if that would actually work, but I, I, you, can, you can follow the thought process there. If we do this, everyone else's debt would be wiped clean. That's the kind of lottery I would win. I would be that guy. Can we go to the next image? So upon seeing this image, a pastor named Nathan White responded. He said, I'm a pastor, and pal, I have got some good news for you. And this, this is such a, a wholesome interaction, and it was so funny to me. I, I screenshotted this like two years ago and sent it to a whole bunch of people. So you might have already seen it before. I'm not sure. Uh, but as I scrolled through the comments on this interaction, there was so many people, even atheists were like, I'm an atheist, and this is hilarious. Like, I want to hang out with this guy. I want to get to know him. And it was just all around was a very good thing. But this guy, Cameron, he didn't realize it, but what he was suggesting, his idea... It wasn't new. It had already been done before. Yeah, amen. And the effect was far greater than freedom from financial burden. Instead, the guilt of all mankind was pinned on one man, Jesus. And he died in our place so that we might become children of God. Now we know this. Assuming you are a believer, you know this. And we are on uh, the other side of the cross. We live 2,000 years, 2,000 plus years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But our passage today was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born as a baby to Mary and Joseph. We're, we're in Isaiah 52. And Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 is a major section in the book of Isaiah. We never got that far when Pastor Brian was preaching through Isaiah. Isaiah 1 through 39, the point is, is to remind Israel to trust in the Lord alone, not to trust in the nations. When we get to Isaiah 40 to 55, the point is to, is to address the, the people who will be in the Babylonian exile. So when Isaiah is writing this, he's writing specifically to a time and a people that are still future to him. And this section was intended to provide assurance to the Babylonian exiles, to assure them that God had not abandoned them, that just because they had gone into exile, God still had great plans for them. As you can imagine, if you were a Babylonian exile, you would have questions. Babylon has come in, leveled our city, they have taken our people. We are now living in Babylon. Where is God? 
Do we still have a relationship with him? Are we still his people? Or has he abandoned us? Is there any way for us to be restored to relationship with God, even though we have rejected him and disobeyed him over and over? Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 answers these questions. And within this this 15-chapter section, there's a series of four songs that we call the servant songs. And in those servant songs, God promises salvation to Israel. He says, yes, I will deliver you out of exile. I will restore you into relationship with me. He says that he's going to send a servant that will enact salvation for the people of Israel. This servant that God plans to send will make the redemption of God's people possible. Now, some scholars believe that the servant in these four servant songs uh, represents the people of Israel collectively, that the nation of Israel is God's servant. Some people believe it was a historical figure that lived in the time of the Babylonian exile. I don't have time to, to lay out the pros and cons of each of these positions, but I'll just summarize and say that both of those views are very problematic And they are not consistent with the context that we find in Isaiah. Others, like myself, would say that the servant from these four servant songs can be nobody other than Jesus. And you'll see as we go, there are are such clear parallels to the life of Jesus that it's hard to ignore that this represents Jesus. But going further than that, the New Testament authors take these songs and they quote them and they apply them directly to Jesus. So there really can be no doubt in our mind that the servant from the passage we're going to read today is Jesus Christ. And this, this song we're going to look at today, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, it's the final of these four servant songs. And it gives a clear picture of how the people of Israel and the rest of humanity will be restored to right relationship with God. So as we walk through this, We want to understand this from from the Israelite perspective. They would have been receiving this from Isaiah initially, so we're going to understand it from their perspective. And then we'll talk about how we uh, apply that to our lives 2,000 years later. So let's start by reading uh, chapter 52, 13 through 53, verse 3. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. For who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This song, it shows us both the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord's servant. And from the, first verse, from the first verse, we see both of these on display. We see the picture of a despised deliverer. That the servant shall act wisely, it says. It's not merely a comment on the fact that, that the servant is a wise individual. But the full force of this verb is that he will act 
with wisdom in such a way that his task will be accomplished and completed. So this servant, he knows what his task is. He will know uh, how to accomplish it, and he will accomplish it. And when he does, he will be high and lifted up and exalted. And this language here of being high and lifted up and exalted, this is important because this is the first clear indicator here that we're talking about Jesus. Because those words appear together only four times in the Old Testament. All four times, they are in the book of Isaiah. Three of those four times, they are referring to the Lord, to Yahweh, to God the Father. And this is the fourth time, referring to the Lord's servant. Who else besides Jesus would be worthy of such exaltation? Surely Israel is not worthy of this kind of honor. No individual man would be worthy of such praise. Only Jesus is worthy of this exaltation. But before this exaltation, he will be humiliated and despised. And Isaiah explains, he goes on to explain how the world responds to the humiliation and the suffering of the Lord's servant. He says they're astonished. They are appalled at the sight of this servant. As a result of the servant's suffering, those that see him can't even recognize him as human. It says he is marred beyond human semblance. In, in the Hebrew, you could translate it literally as, what a disfigurement. Now, given the, the physical abuse that Jesus faced, I think it's likely a, a reference to that, that, that the physical abuse left him disfigured and physically unrecognizable. But I think it's more than that. I think as we go through this passage, all of these statements about his suffering, they're not necessarily meant to, to give us an all-encompassing picture of every single aspect of his suffering, but it's meant to show us the picture of the totality, the severity of the suffering that he endured on our behalf. Either way, though, the, the point is that the, the sight of the servant is astonishing to those who see him. But this astonishment is not only at his suffering, it's also at his future exaltation as well. If you're using an ESV Bible, in verse 15 it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations... You should also see a footnote there. And there's an alternative to the word sprinkle. And it says to startle. I think startle is a better way to translate that verb here. It forms a cleaner parallel with, with verse 14. Um, and if, if, if Isaiah intended to use sprinkle, he was using it in a very odd way uh, that is different than every other time this word would be used. So I think it's better to say that uh, he will startle many nations. So the people will be shocked, appalled when they see him, and the nations will be startled when they see this servant's journey from humiliation to exaltation. The rulers of this world, they will be left speechless because this servant subverts every expectation of what a deliverer is supposed to be like. Because this deliverer does not come in strength. He comes in suffering and humiliation. The nations and the kings, they're amazed that one so lowly could now be high and lifted up. And verse 31 continues that same thought. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a, is a phrase that is used to refer to the Lord's deliverance, his delivering work on behalf of his people. And here it's applied to the servant. So I think we could rephrase verse 51 to, just to help us understand it a little bit better. Essentially, the question being asked is this. 
Who could believe that this man, this servant, is the arm of the Lord? Who could believe that one who suffers so greatly would be the agent of God's deliverance for his people? Nothing about him screams deliverer. Absolutely nothing. This servant, it says, grew up as a young plant. He was a root out of dry ground. This servant wasn't showing up with the strength of a full-grown oak tree. He was a tiny sprout. He was not imposing. He was like a root in the desert. Now, I don't know much about trees, just across the board, I'll be honest with you. But I do know trees need water. And there's not a lot of water in the desert. A root would struggle to grow and be strong and grow into a healthy tree if it was living or if it was planted in the desert. What Isaiah is telling the people here is that their deliverer is not coming as a warrior or a soldier. And we know that. How did Jesus appear? Did he come as a warrior? Did he come as a military commander with an army at his back? No. He came as a baby, born in a manger. How does a baby overthrow kingdoms? How does a baby gather the exiled Jewish people? That's the point. There's nothing about this servant. There's nothing about his arrival, his ministry, anything that that screamed majesty, that screamed conqueror, that screamed deliverer or victorious. No one would look on this servant and see somebody who's going to deliver. And so he was despised and abandoned. They saw him as worthless, contemptible. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. By human perception, this, this man has nothing going for him. He's a nobody. He's a mess. He's characterized by the great suffering he endures. Isaiah writes that that he was one who people would even hide their faces from. His suffering was so much that people didn't even want to look at him. And I think we can understand that if we put it in this term. um, In those days, certain illnesses would lead to people being shunned. So if you had a certain illness, people don't want to come near you. They would stay completely away from you. They wouldn't even get downwind from you out of fear of catching that same illness. You would be utterly rejected. People would hide their face from you. They would turn away from you. And we do that today. If somebody is going through immense suffering, we feel awkward about it. Like we don't know. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing maybe, so we don't want to get too close. We try to dance around those difficult topics and just maybe give them some general encouragement rather than, than really mourning and, and weeping with them in their suffering. So this man's suffering so great, people will ignore him and despise him for it. And that only compounds the suffering. Suffering is bad enough, but those of you who have suffered alone know that is far worse when you have nobody there to support you and lift you up and encourage you. The servant had to suffer before he could redeem. The servant had to suffer before he could redeem. And this suffering that he endured, it it should have brought gratitude out of the hearts of God's people because this was the means of their deliverance and their redemption. The Lord's servant was their deliverer, but they avoided him as if he was sick. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And notice that change in person there. Isaiah uses we in the passage. And when he does that, it's referring to the people of Israel, God's chosen people. So even God's people, Israel, didn't recognize the servant when he came. Like everybody else, they couldn't look past the outer appearance, the suffering of the servant. The servant would be exalted when his work was complete, but first he had to appear as a despised deliverer, a suffering servant. 
Why, though? If I lived in Isaiah's day, if I was in the Babylonian exile, I would be asking that question. This is the arm of the Lord we're talking about. Why doesn't he just come in and fix everything and make it right and, and restore us? Why doesn't he just do it this way? Why is suffering such a vital role in the servant's task? And that's a fair question. Luckily, Isaiah answers that in the next few verses. So read with me from verses, uh, chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So now we see the reason why the servant had to suffer. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't that he did anything wrong. He bore our griefs, our sorrows. Isaiah says he's carrying the suffering that we should be carrying. And even as he did that, we paid him no regard. We thought him worthless. We looked at him as if he was cursed by God, as if, as if he had com- committed some egregious sin. We thought he was unfaithful, but in reality, he was the definition of faithfulness. And he was suffering for God's people. Not because of them. He was not suffering because of God's people. He was suffering for them. Suffering in their place. The very suffering that appalled God's people, that caused them to hide their faces, that was a suffering really that belonged to them. Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He took the chastisement that brought us peace. God took the iniquity of all people and laid it on his servant. The servant takes the place of God's people, brutally murdered for it like a criminal. But in doing so, he brought peace between God and God's people. Because there was peace at a time, but it had been removed because they had sinned against the Lord. They had rejected him over and over. But in order for that to be restored, justice needed to be satisfied. Discipline against that sin had to be meted out. But the problem was that God's people could not survive the judgment of God against their sin. So the servant stepped in to their place. Stepped into that gap. He bears their sin. He bears their punishment so that they can be restored to the Lord. It was through the suffering he endured that we are healed from our broken and sinful state. The servant suffered for the sins of God's people. That is why suffering was so vital. That is why he couldn't just come and snap his fingers. He had to suffer in our place because we racked up a debt. And just to make sure that no one can claim that they didn't contribute to the suffering of this servant, Isaiah goes on to compare God's people to sheep. It's not a good comparison. Sheep are dumb. They don't, they don't think through decisions. All they care about is, is finding more grass to eat. I think that's what sheep eat. I actually don't know. Uh, but they are not concerned with the consequences of their actions. On top of that, they get scared really easily. And they get scared and they just run in any direction. They, they, they don't care about where they're going. They're just trying to get away from whatever scared them, and they often end up lost. People are like sheep in this way, Isaiah says, never thinking about the consequences, going wherever they see fit. And they usually end up lost, straying 
from the Father. People are like sheep going astray. We have strayed from the Lord and gone after sin. Every single one of us, Isaiah says. But the consequences for your sin didn't fall on you. fell on the servant. Or rather, God has taken the sin and he has placed it upon his servant. Now the standard way of thinking in that day is that if you suffered, it was because you have sinned. God was punishing you for your mistakes. But that isn't the case here. Here, God is causing his servant to suffer, not for his own iniquity, but for the iniquity of God's people. Think back to that that tweet I showed you at, at the start. If we took that guy's plan and put it into action, would that be just? Would that be a a fair way to treat that individual? No, it wouldn't. Is it just here? Why can God take our sin? That's our debt. We deserve that. Why is he placing it on somebody else? Let's pick back up in verse 7. Because again, Isaiah will answer this question. Verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. We get another sheep comparison here. Only this time it's the servant being compared to the sheep. It's a very different comparison though because when God's people are compared to the sheep, it was negative. It's not a negative comparison here. Isaiah says that the sheep is silent. The sheep does not complain. Whether it's being led to have its wool sheared off or whether it's being led to be slaughtered for a sacrifice or for a meal. It doesn't know so it doesn't care. It's not going to talk back to you. It's not going to try and plead its cause. It's not going to try to convince you to take a, another sheep to say this, this sheep is bigger and fatter and juicier than me. You, you'd rather eat him. It's not going to do that. It, it's going to be silent. Now the sheep is silent out of ignorance. It, it doesn't know what's going to happen. But the comparison here is the idea of being silent. The servant is silent. He doesn't plead his case. He doesn't insist on his own innocence. He doesn't try to convince the people around him that, that this isn't his fault, that he did nothing wrong. He's not trying to convince them that I'm doing this for you. This is your sin that I'm being punished for. He's silent. And in that day, to not plead your own innocence was taken as further affirmation that, that you were guilty. But the servant remains silent. Why is that? Is it Because he's ignorant of the fate that awaits him? Because he doesn't know what's going to happen? No, it's it's the opposite. The first line says that he is oppressed and afflicted. Another way to translate that, that Hebrew word for afflicted is that he humbled himself. So he was oppressed, yet he humbled himself and did not open his mouth. The servant was innocent, but he suffered willingly. His suffering was voluntary. He didn't refuse to object to his mistreatment or out of ignorance, out of frustration or anything like that. He willingly took that oppression, that mistreatment, that judgment 
that God's people deserved. All of their sin, all of the judgment, all of the mistreatment, everything they racked up, he willingly took upon himself. He knew he was going to the slaughter, but he knew it was God's will. And so he wanted God's people to be delivered, so he was obedient, he was faithful. He did not try to to convince them not to mistreat him or to not judge him. He faithfully accepted God's will for him. So he suffered in the place of God's people, but he does so willingly. And it says he was taken away or, or killed by the judgment and oppression reserved for God's people. And then his contemporaries, the generation that was alive when, when the servant walked on the earth, they didn't even consider why it was that the servant was killed. They couldn't comprehend that this man was the arm of the Lord, the one sent to deliver God's people and the rest of humanity. But this reinforces what Isaiah has been saying. God's people don't even recognize the Messiah, the servant, when he comes. The suffering he endures is perplexing to them. They don't embrace the servant. They don't give thanks for him. That's what they should have done. This man is going to deliver you. Instead, they killed him like a criminal and nailed him to a cross, even though he did nothing wrong. And they can't even begin to fathom all that the servant has accomplished by laying his life down in such a manner. When we get to verse 9, it's a little bit tricky, so we need to keep in mind the main point of this section, which is that the servant uh, did not deserve to suffer or die, but he willingly subjected himself to those things so that we would not have to. Now, there's two ways we can understand the verse, and whichever of those two ways you fall, uh, that, that overall idea remains unchanged. Uh, but I feel like it's worth pointing this out because the Hebrew does allow for either one of these interpretations. So, one, we could see this as a prophecy regarding the burial of the servant. This is very common throughout church history. I'd say this is probably the dominant view. But it's saying that the servant was killed as a criminal, right? The cross was a, was a, a way of death reserved for the wicked, for the lawbreakers. And those people killed on the cross, they didn't get a proper burial. Their body was thrown into a pit with the rest of the lawbreakers. So this could be contrasting the death and the burial of the servant, killed with criminals but buried with the rich. And we know that the servant is Jesus. We know that Jesus died a criminal's death on the cross, but he was not buried as a criminal. A wealthy man named Joseph Joseph of Arimathea who was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, saw to it that Jesus received a proper burial. Alternatively, the wicked and the rich could be forming a parallel here. So this may be saying nothing about the burial of the servant at all. It could just be about the way he was unjustly killed. And if we read it in this way, he's using rich and wicked synonymously. So he's basically saying that the servant died like the wicked, killed like the rich. And again, the reason I point this out is because the Hebrew really does allow for either option here. And I think that each option has its strengths. I personally think the similarity between the language here and the burial of Jesus is just way too close to be unintentional. And so I I lean pretty heavily towards that first interpretation. But either way, the overall point remains unchanged. This servant was sinless There was no wrong to hold against him, and he was nailed to a tree like a criminal. And Isaiah, again, takes great care to explain that the servant was sinless. He did not sin. And again, why is that important? Could could a sinful man be the sacrifice so God's people could be forgiven? 
Could a sinful man not offer to take on the debt of the world and sacrifice himself? I would say no. Remember, the servant's work was was about redeeming God's people. So I I would say two reasons why it would not work for a sinful man to, to pay that debt. One is that God simply required a sacrifice without blemish. We see that all through the Old Testament, through the sacrificial system, God required a a perfect sacrifice. How could a man who has his own debt to pay turn around and pay the debts of everybody else? It does not work like that. But even if it did, let's assume that it did. That, That wouldn't solve the problem of sin for God's people. Because what the servant did, what Jesus did, was more than take away the sins of God's people. That's important. He did do that. Please don't hear me minimizing that work. But if that's all he did we would still be in trouble. Because how many of you have sinned since you started following Jesus? Every single one of us. Every single day of our lives. All of us have. Yes, we, need, we needed that forgiveness, 100%. But Jesus had to be obedient for us as well. If all he did was take our sins away and wipe our slate clean, we would have made that, that slate very dirty again very quickly. We needed Jesus to be obedient on our behalf. And in his sinless life, he provided representative obedience for us. That means that when our sin was laid on Jesus, his righteousness was attributed and counted to us. So the servant never sinned, but he took our sin on himself, willingly suffering in our place. And because he was sinless, he could be the perfect atoning sacrifice and he could provide the representative righteousness that we needed to be redeemed and restored to relationship with God. This is an incredible work from the servant of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21, Paul writes that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the work of the servant summed up. I think Paul had this passage in mind when he was writing 2 Corinthians. So the servant suffered in the place of God's people and he did so willingly. Let's read the last three verses. Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. We can't eliminate the role of the Father in this suffering. Now that God could could orchestrate or cause suffering sometimes makes us uncomfortable. The Bible is very clear here. It was God's will to crush his servant. It was God's will to put him to grief. Yes, it was voluntary on the servant's part, but it was still the very will of God. God sovereignly ordained every bit of suffering that the servant would endure because it was necessary to save 
God's people. So God brings about suffering. Sometimes he even causes suffering because that suffering will bring something much greater to fruition. God allowed this servant, his son, Jesus, to suffer in our place, to be the guilt offering we needed so that we could be reconciled to God and forgiven. And like sheep, God's people have strayed. But on the basis of this guilt offering that the servant offers, they will return as children of God. And though the servant dies, his days will be prolonged. He will not stay dead. Now this this passage doesn't explicitly state anything about the resurrection of Jesus, but I can see no other implication to draw from this. The servant was dead. He died for our iniquities, but the Lord prolongs his days. The Lord will raise him up again. He did not stay dead. He rose from the dead and then ascended to be with the Father and is exalted at the Father's side. What a relief this message would be to the Jewish people in exile. The people wondering if the Lord has abandoned them. No. Isaiah says, no, God hasn't abandoned you. In fact, he has an incredible plan to save you, to redeem you. The servant's going to accomplish the will of the Lord. He's going to accomplish that plan. That's what it means when when Isaiah says the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The servant will complete his task. His success is a guarantee. So the people in exile should look forward in hope because God is coming to bring you out of exile and back to himself. And when this is accomplished, it says that the servant will look back and be satisfied. Satisfied out of the anguish of his own soul. All of us have probably experienced some sort of great pain that brought about something very good. And we can look back and say, man, that was worth it. That was, that was horrible, but that was absolutely worth it. Think of, think of a mother who gives birth to her child, enduring great pain and suffering through childbirth. But the moment she holds that child would absolutely tell you it was all worth it. Every second of it was worth it. This is the same idea. The servant will look back on his suffering, the greatest suffering in human history, and be satisfied. He will say it was worth it because the righteous one makes many righteous. The suffering servant, the sin-bearing servant will make many righteous. Praise the Lord for that. The servant's suffering has made many righteous But the beautiful thing is we've been talking specifically about the people of Israel, about God's chosen people. But the many here, this is not only about Israel. The many extends all over the world. It includes people from every single nation and tongue. God's desire was never only to save Israel, but the entire world. Read with me from Isaiah 49 verse 6 and see what God says to his servant there. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is incredible news, you guys. I laughed when I read this passage. I mean, it just, it, it, the way that he goes about it makes me laugh. Like he's saying to his servant, you know, it would just be way too easy for you to save Israel. To to bear the sins of all those millions and millions of people, that is way too light a task. Instead, we're going to demonstrate my goodness and mercy by saving all people. 
You will bear the sins and the iniquity of every single person from the start of history to the end of it. There will be nobody outside the scope of the redemptive work of the Lord's servant. It will be available to all who believe. But this does compound even more the suffering the servant bore. He didn't only suffer for Israel. He suffered for all people, every single person, every single sin that was ever committed. All of us know that that stab of guilt over our sin, when when our sin comes to light and we realize what we have done, what a horrible feeling. It feels like it's eating us from the inside out. The servant, Jesus, bore the sin and guilt of everyone. Not just one sin per person, every single sin they ever committed. Imagine the suffering he endured. That, is, that, that eclipses the physical suffering that he went through. But praise God for the faithfulness of Jesus because despite all of that, he accomplished his task. And verse 12 gives us a picture of a victorious conqueror, not, not a military leader, but a conqueror who came and conquered as a slain lamb, who, who laid his life down for his people. And in verse 12, he's enjoying the spoils of victory, sharing it among his allies, those who have returned to the Lord on the basis of the servant's righteousness and sacrifice. And even the mighty, the rulers, are given as spoil to the servant. In his exaltation, the servant is placed far above all the rulers of this world. He has given authority over every single one of them. The kings who were shocked by the servant's humiliation are now placed subject underneath him. And the closing lines here, they summarize the cause of the servant's exaltation with four, four statements. He poured his soul out to death. He willingly laid down his life. He was numbered with the transgressors. He allowed himself to be treated and numbered as a criminal and sinner. He didn't simply lay his life down with them, but for them, taking their sin on himself and laying his life down on their behalf. And he provided intercession for sinners. And this intercession is not referring to prayer. Usually when we say the word inter- intercede, we're, we're talking about prayer. This is referring to the servant's priestly work on, uh, on our behalf. He offered a guilt offering, a sacrifice for our sins that we could not offer. We were incapable, so he stepped in and did it so that we could be redeemed. Now if I condense everything I've just talked about down to one sentence, it's this. God redeemed his people through the obedience and suffering of Jesus. God redeemed his people through the obedience and suffering of Jesus. What a relief to the people of Israel to hear that God is not done with you. God has a plan to restore and redeem you. What incredible news for humanity who is hopeless, who has no understanding of the purpose of life, but the gospel says, no, there is a a purpose You can know the God of the universe. You can know the only true God and you can enjoy him forever. But what practical application does this passage have for us 2,000 years after Jesus completed this work? Before we close, I offer two applications. One, rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. This is much easier said than done. But brothers and sisters, your suffering is never meaningless. It is never wasted. It is never without purpose. It may not be enjoyable to walk through, 
but it is never wasted. It makes us more like Jesus. It has a sanctifying effect on us. In the book of Romans, in the book of James, it tells us it produces spiritual maturity in us. Jesus told his disciples in John 15 and in John 17 that they will be hated for their faith in him. He said, you're not of the world, so the world's going to hate you. So when we suffer for faith in Jesus, it affirms that we truly do belong to Jesus. In Philippians 3, Paul writes that he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. He says whatever he suffers, whatever he loses, is utter rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. So as we suffer for our faith, we have the opportunity to show others around us the infinite value and goodness of Jesus Christ. Because no matter what we lose, no matter what we suffer, we have gained Jesus. We've already gained everything. So even in suffering, we can rejoice. God allows us to suffer. Sometimes God even causes that suffering. But he promises that when we suffer in the path of obedience, it is not wasted. In, in 2 Corinthians uh, Four, he even tells us that the suffering we are experiencing now, it is light and momentary, but it is preparing you for the eternal weight of glory that you will receive when Jesus returns. So our suffering might not bring material good, but it always brings spiritual blessing. If God can take the greatest suffering and injustice in all of human history and use it for the greatest good in all of history, surely he can use what you are suffering for for good as well. So embrace your suffering. Rejoice in it because God is using it. I draw the second application from 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter quotes Isaiah 53. We saw a little bit of that last week when uh, Tim was preaching and you'll see it again next week. So in 1 Peter uh, 2, 21 through 25, he's quoting this passage and he's reminding uh, He's reminding us that, that when we suffer for our faith in Jesus, which is a certainty, it will happen, we must suffer in the same manner that Jesus suffered. Jesus' suffering and obedience, it secured our redemption, but it also left an example of how we ought to suffer as well. So my second application for you guys, follow Jesus' example of obedience in the midst of suffering. Follow Jesus' example in the... Uh, in the midst of obedience in the midst of suffering. When we suffer, we are often tempted. I think oftentimes we're tempted to pridefulness, to think we deserve better, or to think somebody else deserves worse. I'm, I'm engaged at church. I'm serving regularly. I, I do this and that. Why do I have to deal with this nonsense? This guy's a, a joker. He doesn't show up hardly at all. He's never involved. He's not serious about his relationship with Jesus. Why isn't he suffering? We have a tendency to do that, to think that we are above suffering when even our Savior was not above suffering. For others, it may be that our suffering brings forth anger at the Lord. Lord, how dare you? How dare you put this on my plate? You know everything else I have going on. This is just one more thing. Maybe it's not the Lord. Maybe, maybe you lash out in anger at those around you. Maybe for others, it's, it just leaves you discontent, complaining and grumbling, all three of which are sinful. Jesus didn't do those things. He didn't complain. He, he didn't complain even though there were many. Everyone was more deserving of the suffering. 
But they didn't suffer as much as he did. Instead, he humbled himself and accepted God's will for him, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus didn't retaliate when he was beaten or scorned. He didn't lash out in anger at those around him. He didn't grumble and complain in the midst of suffering. He embraced it and walked in obedience because he knew that would glorify the Father. Though he was innocent, Jesus suffered. Despite his suffering, he honored the Father in word, in deed, in thought. And I don't say this to diminish the suffering that some of you are going through because I know some of you are going through it right now and you guys are suffering. But Jesus' suffering dwarfs anything you or I ever have experienced or ever will experience. But it never drove him to sin. If Jesus didn't complain, if Jesus didn't retaliate, how arrogant is it for us to presume that we have that right? That our sin is somehow justified because we are going through a period of suffering. When Jesus suffered, he didn't, justify, he didn't seek to justify or defend himself. He didn't get angry. He didn't seek revenge. Instead, he had compassion. He showed grace to those who oppressed him and mistreated him. He wept over them, seeing their sin, desiring that they would repent. That's the grace and compassion we should show for those who attack and oppress us for our faith. Jesus was the suffering, sin-bearing servant so that we could be redeemed and forgiven, so that we might walk faithfully and obedient before our Heavenly Father. Church, your suffering may be difficult, and I know that it is, but rejoice in it because God is using it for your good and His glory. So whether you are in a season of suffering or in a season of peace and rest, follow the example of Jesus and walk in obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled when we come face to face with the suffering that you endured on our behalf. And Lord, we are so grateful that you provided a sacrifice that we could not provide on our own. We thank you that you sent Jesus to be the suffering, sin-bearing servant. We thank you that he did not only take away our sins, but that he also gave us his own righteousness. We thank you for the salvation you have made possible for us. And we thank you that it is not something that we have to work or earn or achieve, but something that we attain by faith in your son, Jesus. Lord, for those of us that are suffering, I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience to not be tempted to sin, to not give in to temptation to sin, but help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, to trust that you are working through our suffering. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.